Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, the UK's banks are under fire again from the government over the amount of lending they're doing. The banks have missed the first quarter agreement by some margin, about 12%, and they've lent um, essentially just under £17 billion to small businesses in, in the first three months, and they're aiming for an annual target of 76 Deutsche Bank has its AGM on Thursday amid growing speculation that Joe Ackerman is about to signal his retirement as chief executive. One of the black marks against Ackerman as a chief executive is that he's never really been able to settle the bank upon a successor to himself. And former RBS chief Sir Fred Goodwin finds himself at the centre of the furore over super injunctions. Sir Fred was named in the House of Lords for having an affair while he was chief executive of the bank. And questions have since followed as to how much of an impact this had or could have had on the key decisions he was making during that time. Joining me this week is retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff and chief regulation correspondent Brooke Masters. Let's start the show as usual, though, with stateside. This week, the US banking update comes from Helen Thomas. Over to you, Helen. Thanks, Patrick. This week in the US, the banks got a few more details of the regulatory regime. Goldman Sachs had further troubles, and the Treasury has been working on its exit from insurer AIG. First up, the banks got a few more details of the regulation they're going to have to contend with in the new order. The Federal Reserve said that it intends to run annual stress tests and capital tests on US banks. It also wants to reserve the right to interfere with dividend policy and to veto payouts if needed. Second, the CDA mess at Goldman just won't go away. Carl Levin, the chairman of the Senate Investigations Subcommittee, said he harboured real hope of law enforcement authorities acting on his panel's report. Goldman's shares dropped sharply on the news as other analysts picked up the theme that the bank's troubles may not be behind it. And finally, the US Treasury has been working on its proposed exit from AIG. The Treasury is expected this week on Tuesday to sell the first of its 92% stake in the insurer. So tomorrow we're expecting them to sell up to 300 million shares as the first step of their efforts to exit the bailout of the insurer, which happened in 2008. That's all from the US. Back to you, Patrick. Thanks, Helen. Let's start in the UK here with news from the Bank of England that lending by Britain's banks has been lower than the targeted number that the the government wanted the banks to be lending, particularly to SMEs. This is all part of the, the Project Merlin Accord that was signed between the banks and the government. And we've got the first quarter results for the volumes of lending. Charlene, why are uh, the politicians jumping up and down? The first figures were published today of of the Merlin Agreement, and this was the peace deal that we saw between the banks and the government signed earlier this year. And and one of the central parts of that was to sign the banks up to tougher lending agreements, particularly to small businesses. 
And that's at the centre of the uh, sort of politicians' anger today as it transpired that the banks have missed the first quarter agreement by some margin, about 12%, and they've lent um, essentially just under 17 billion pounds to small businesses in in the first three months and they're aiming for an annual target of 76. So not a great start to the year from the banks. I mean, from the bank's side, I mean, they've been growing sort of increasingly agitated in recent days because they argue that these weren't formal targets. They were never designed that way. They were meant to reflect sort of maximum capacity that they were willing to lend if demand is there. And so we've heard the banks come out again this morning and sort of reiterate their long-standing argument that the uh, lending figures reflect the muted demand. Small businesses are still repaying loans, not wanting to take on extra debt, and therefore they can't meet the sort of maximum agreements that they said they would try to do. Brooke, what role has regulation played in holding back this volume of lending? There's there's some suggestion that SME loans in particular are likely to become or have already become not only more risky and therefore potentially less attractive for the banks in a more cautious environment, but also very capital intensive. And therefore, maybe it's far more attractive for banks to lend to big companies than to smaller ones. Well, under the Basel Accords that were Basel Three, which was a, basically approved late last year, banks have to hold more capital. And the riskier the loan, the more capital they have to hold against it. And under the risk weightings that have been adopted, residential mortgages and big company lending is much less risky than SME lending. And so every time the capital requirements go up, the proportional riskiness and proportional capital requirements of SME lending goes up and makes it much less attractive. And so banks are already shrinking their balance sheets. And if they had a choice, I think they want to get rid of SME lending. Why are they not making the point, do you think, that regulators on the one side are pushing them away from doing SME lending while governments are pushing them towards it and that they're kind of caught in the middle? They've tried, but I think their their general feeling is people are not very sympathetic to them. The, the, I think you know they are perfectly willing to lend to very, very risky things if they can make a lot of money off it. So it's not an entirely legitimate argument in that some of the things they lend to are far riskier than SMEs, but the potential for profit is higher. Just a final word, Charlie, on the big society bank, something we carried a story on today, another bone of contention really between the banks and the government, the fact that the banks promised as part of Project Merlin as well to inject £200 million of their own money and expected a commercial return on that. It emerges now that this big society bank will give them zero return. Unsurprisingly, I suppose the banks or some of them are cross about this. Well, they are. And I, I mean, I think they're on both counts, the Merlin and the big society, they're thinking that, you know, they entered into this agreement with the government, they didn't get a lot back really from it. And now it transpired that they got even less than they thought they had. And they've sort of put themselves in the line of fire. I mean, it's a small amount of money going into the big society, you know, 200 million. But still, they were told they would get a commercial return. It doesn't look like they will. So I think there is a sense of anger. Let's move on now to Deutsche Bank. Deutsche have their annual general meeting of shareholders later this week on Thursday. Joining us on the line from Frankfurt is FT correspondent James Wilson. James, in amongst all the usual protocol is going to be quite an interesting debate, I think. Joe Ackerman, who's been chief executive of the bank for, what, more than 10 years now, may well signal that he's going to retire earlier than expected, and certainly there's going to be some talk about potential succession issues. What are you expecting? Joe Ackerman has led Deutsche successfully now for, as you say, the best part of a decade. He renewed his contract 
a couple of years ago when it became clear that Deutsche was struggling to find a successor. And, you know, one of the black marks against Ackerman as a chief exec is that he's never really been able to settle the bank upon a successor to, to himself. His contract is due to run out in 2013, having once been renewed. There's a feeling that having had to be persuaded to stay on, Ackerman is not particularly keen on seeing out the full length of that contract, although he would publicly say otherwise. So given the the timetable that one could construct, it might be that now in 2011, Deutsche feels obliged to drop a few more hints or show a bit more leg as to who might be the possible runners and riders for succession, say, in 2012. So who, uh, who are the runners and riders? The chief internal candidate is reckoned to be Anshu Jain, who's the relatively successful head of the investment bank at Deutsche. Now, in the investment bank and the trading side is where most of Deutsche's revenues and profits come from. So that naturally gives Anshu Jain, who's recently taken sole charge of that division, a very good case to make as uh, the next chief executive. But he's not German. He's not German. And, you know, there's a school of thought that, if you like, flag-carrying German bank needs a German or at least a German speaker like Mr. Ackerman to, as it were, deal with the political side of running Germany's biggest bank. What's the favoured solution for uh, coming up with that model? where things are thrown into the dark because it's quite clear that Joseph Ackerman himself has a very, shall we say, soft spot for Axel Weber, who the recently departed head of the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank. Now, Axel Weber is an economist and university professor. He's never really been a commercial banker, but clearly he's been a very significant regulator of the banking system and knows a lot about banking in that general sense. Ackerman has really been, between the lines, making a good case for uh, an intelligent outsider to come in and to take a role at, at Deutsche. And so there is some talk that Weber, although, as you say, he's not a commercial banker, could be handed some significant role in a senior role at, at Deutsche Bank, which tends to throw the succession problem at Deutsche into even more confusion, it must be said. One suggestion, I think, is, is that he becomes maybe in the German system as a supervisory board and an executive board, that he joins the supervisory board potentially as a deputy chairman, becoming chairman maybe in a, a year later or something. Another suggestion is that you somehow have some sort of dual roles for both Mr. Jane and Mr. Weber at the top of Deutsche Bank. Quite how they could happily or otherwise coexist is open to question. But the timing speaks certainly to a role for Weber. He's left the central bank rather surprisingly early this year when he seemed to be the favoured candidate for the ECB job. He's on gardening leave, as it were, or uh, academic uh, post in the US. He could probably take a, a post, having had a role in the as a regulator, he wouldn't be free to take up a role in the banking system until next year. But that could suit Deutsche's timing in terms of the succession. So he's very much in the frame. Very good. Well, we'll be watching that closely, and shareholders will too, I'm sure, on Thursday. Thanks, James, for joining us. Finally, moving on to Sir Fred Goodwin. Now, he is the former chief executive of RBS, known widely as Fred the Shred for his uh, cost-cutting antics while at uh, RBS. But he's in the news lately for other reasons, namely that he has been named in breach of a super injunction due to parliamentary privilege in Parliament last week, which has set off another round of investigation, both internally at RBS and also at the regulator, the Financial Services Authority, into exactly what happened and whether this was a problem in terms of the way the bank was being run and whether shareholders were were at all damaged by this. Charlene, you've been looking at the story. What's the latest? 
It's funny in a way, just as we were saying recently that, you know, Stephen Hester, the new chief executive of RBS, is sort of taking strides to rebuild the bank and and sort of break from the past. It seems he can't quite shake off the sort of former behaviour of his predecessor. Sir Fred, as you said, was named as uh, in the House of Lords for having an affair during his time with a senior senior colleague colleague, while he was chief executive of the bank. And obviously questions have since followed as to how much of an impact this had or could have had on the key decisions he was making during that time you know which led to effectively led to the bank's collapse now that we're very limited on what we can say about the senior colleague involved but can't she name her, for example we can't name her she's still covered under the super injunction what is the real issue from sir fred's point of view in what way might it have damaged the bank i think the questions that are being asked is whether this could have had any bearing on the way he ran the bank at the time whether that was kind of whether she was involved in any strategic decisions or whether he was distracted from the job I guess the sense that we're getting is that the role that she had at the bank was not one that was crucial to big strategic decisions such as the purchase of ABN AMRO. She was more sidelined from the boardroom, so to speak. But nevertheless... She wasn't sitting on any of the key committees no. or making any decisions with financial relevance. No. And as we understand it, the bank, since it got knowledge of the affair, which was very recently, it transpired that people at the bank, past or present, did not know that this was happening at the time. But it's our understanding that the bank has undertaken a review of her and whether she had any involvement in key decisions and found that she didn't. That's one element. The other was that the the bank does have an internal code of conduct whereby any senior member of staff should raise with their line manager if they are having an affair that could create a potential conflict of interest. And it sounds like that didn't happen in this case. So Sir Fred should have told Tom McKillop um, as chairman. Yes, he should have told either of the two former chairmen during his reign. Both have come out over the weekend and said that they didn't know. Likewise, the regulator, the FSA, our understanding that they didn't know either until the story was broken in the press a couple of months ago. So the FSA is now getting involved. It's requested information from the bank. It's going to feed it into the report that it's already doing on RBS. But that process is only just beginning now. So, Brooke, why is it only now, as as we understand it in the, in the last couple of days, that the FSA has looked at this and made this request? Well, if you think about the timing, the, the first publication of anything connected to this occurred in about March when the super injunction was obtained. At that point, the FSA was already done with its enforcement proceedings. So it decided not to bring a case against Sir Fred without ever knowing anything. Since that time, because there was the fury about the failure to explain why they hadn't brought a case, the FSA had started work on a larger report that will cover both why didn't they bring a case against anybody at RBS, but also what went wrong at RBS. For that report, which will now be overseen by Sir David Walker and Harvey Knight, who who are both big city figures, the section on what went wrong at RBS now almost certainly will include information, if relevant, on Sir Fred's issues. And that's what they're asking for the information on. The FSA does have the ability to reopen an enforcement case if new information comes to light. So if, if it does, in spite of everything we've already heard from Charlene, turn out somehow to be relevant and to be a violation of some sort of conduct standard, the FSA could bring an enforcement action, although it certainly doesn't look like it's headed that way. Well, if at that point it does move from being a tabloid story into one that we should care more about, then uh, we'll come back to it. 
That's all we have time for, sadly, today. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Brooke in the studio in London, James in Frankfurt, and Helen in New York, and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.